Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Hey friends, this introduction was recorded on June 6th, 2020. The interview was recorded on May 18th, 2020. I'm pleased to bring the second of two episodes featuring the work of Jacqueline E. Lawton, playwright, dramaturg, producer, and advocate for access, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the American theater. In this episode, along with dramaturg Jules Odendahl-James, you'll hear Jacqueline discuss her play, Ardeo. Ardeo is a one-act play inspired by research and personal narratives of health practitioners and patients at UNC Chapel Hill's North Carolina's J.C. Byrne Center. This play explores how patients and doctors communicate with each other, how health practitioners communicate with the public, and how theater artists can be of service to patients, doctors, and the larger public. Please see the link in the show notes to learn and read more about Ardeo, to see photos and watch the short film of the piece performed. You may have noticed that many of the 2020 Artist Soapbox episodes have focused on playwrights, playwriting, and new play development, and that is certainly the case, again, for this episode. In this conversation, Jacqueline and Jules touch on the field of narrative medicine, the particular playwriting process for Ardeo, the value of partnering the dramatic arts with science, and opportunities to create those collaborations. Speaking of collaborations, Jules and Jacqueline talk about their work together as theater makers and the awesomeness of dramaturgs and dramaturgy, especially for new plays in development. Narrative medicine is not my specialty, but it does seem to me that this may be an important moment for personal narratives of COVID-19. Both for patients and health practitioners, sharing individual experiences and stories can be a way to share information about symptoms and best practices, can be a tool for healing and recovery even during isolation, and can be a way to feel seen and to be seen. And now for the bios. Jacqueline E. Lawton is a playwright, dramaturg, producer, and advocate for access, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the American theater. Her produced plays include Bloodbound and Tongue Tied, The Hampton Years, Intelligence, Mad Breed, and The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Currently, she is an assistant professor in the Department of Dramatic Art at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and a dramaturg for Playmakers Repertory Company. She is also Dramatist Guild's regional representative for North Carolina. Jules Odendahl-James is director and dramaturg, specializing in art and science collaborations, documentary performance, and works by women playwrights. She is a co-founder of Durham's Bulldog Ensemble Theater after four years as an associate artistic director at Man Bites Dog Theater from 2014 to 2018. At Duke University, she is a lecturer in theater studies, the program director of Arts and Humanities Advising, a member of the Disability Access Initiative, and a 2017-18 Teaching for Equity Fellow. She was a Kinley Scholar of Medical Humanities at Penn State College of Medicine and an affiliated faculty of Duke's Reimagining Medicine pilot program in 2018. She has taught courses in medical humanities, such as Playing Doctor, 
medical stories on stage, performing science, and visual cultures of medicine. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Jules. Hello, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for talking with me this Monday morning. I would like to talk a little bit about Ardeo, a project that you have worked on together. Before we launch into that, I'm wondering if one of you would begin with talking about what is narrative medicine for those listeners, myself included, who aren't as familiar with that. Narrative medicine is a practice. It's a field of study. It is one that encourages healthcare professionals to study narrative theory and literature as a means by which to meet patients' stories, which are complex and winding, with the kind of attention to, you know, not just the facts, ma'am, that kind of dragnet approach, but to really find out to really learn how to listen. And also narrative medicine is a practice that's offered to healthcare professionals to write their own stories, right? Their own kind of winding understandings of, you know, not only diagnostics, but the dynamics of medicine and care and giving their a space for their own subjectivity. It's also one that tries to conquer that false divide between subjectivity and objectivity as saying that all knowledges are valuable and necessary, particularly when we come to the complexity of treating someone with an illness that it doesn't even need to be a complex illness to have complexity in its experience. And so narrative medicine has become a a tool. It's also being assessed now for how does it have impact on on patient outcomes, as well as on physician resilience. There's a crisis in healthcare long before the pandemic between how physicians and healthcare practitioners of all different kinds are dealing with the complexities of the social practice of medicine as experience, everything from its economics to the wrestling with mortality. Um, So these are all things that need practitioners who are able to see with multiple lenses. And narrative medicine offers narrative particularly as one of those ways to provide another complex lens to the complex practices. You mentioned that this was being assessed for outcomes. What are the outcomes that we're seeing? Well, outcome is always a a thorny question between arts and sciences. There are things that are trying to I think measure literally patient outcomes. Does a practice of narrative medicine or of journaling or of collaborative storytelling or listening to a patient's story and writing about it, do these things change something about the way the patient is experiencing their care, the way that they recover, the way that the physician approaches their job? Those outcomes are hard to measure, and whether they are valued once they are measured is a big question. There's a lot of embrace of the term well-being around art and health these days, that well-being as a diagnostic measure is something that we need to be looking at more seriously, and it's also one of those things that is very complex and difficult to measure. I think sometimes I would like science to let go of the measuring part of it because, again, you can turn a a practice that is coming from a good place and doing good things 
into something that becomes rote and like measures you have to hit. And that I think undermines its benefits, sort of like wellness. And wellness almost is a tyranny these days. Like, are you well? Are you doing your mindfulness? Like these are packages, ideas that have a good origin and have a very kind of freeing space to them. But when they become diagnostic measures or outcome measures, they they can be like, oh, am I doing it right? Are there things that I've done? Am I doing them in the proper order? And now I just feel like it's another thing I have to do as opposed to being more connected to my being. So I think at Columbia University where narrative medicine, this is where Rita Sharon, who's one of the I would say sort of the founding members of the discipline, they are doing uh, assessment measures in relationship to recovery from particularly, I think, complex chronic illnesses like cancer. But at the same time, that's becoming sort of part of a physician-assessed practice. I think there are other dimensions where people are starting to question, why does assessment need to look a particular way? How do we start talking about impact in relationship to these practices without making them feel like another thing you have to do instead of finding the best things that work when you're working with a patient or when you're thinking about yourself as a caregiver? What makes sense? What brings the best um, experience to this moment? And letting those have some space of value um, in their effectiveness. Thank you for that. You know, one of the things I want to talk about is the feedback that you all have received from Ardeo and about valuing the individual experience, the individual unique experience and giving that value both as a story, but also as, as we experience it as audience members, I think is something that can sometimes bump up against our desperate need to have everything quantified and to accrue data that is sort of uniform and it, it results in kind of a strange like teaching to the test that can yes. happen. Jacqueline, could you dovetail for us into this Ardeo project? Absolutely. So uh, my interest in narrative medicine actually started without that terminology wrapped around it. It was when my mother had several back surgeries and she was actually, she worked as, she worked as a nurse. She was working in a nursing home and a patient was resisting being lifted and pushed her and she fell. And that's what caused the beginning of her back injury. And multiple surgeries later, she was told that she was incapacitated. And that was a word that was given to her. Mm. And the thing that I have always really longed for is different language to be applied from and, and, and it to be from the point of view of the patient. My mother did not feel incapacitated. My mother felt an extraordinary pain. And she felt an immediate difference in her way of life. And she was also no longer working as a nurse, but the language of incapacitated didn't actually reflect her reality. But that was a term that kept being lobbed at her. And I just thought that was such an interesting and I think unfortunate way that medicine can be communicated or, or the result of, you know, healthcare. I wanted my mothers to tell the story of how she was feeling from her specific point of view. And not just because she's a medical practitioner, but because she's a human being who's having this relationship with her body and can speak out loud to the experience happening within her body. 
And so then later, when I met Jules, <laughs> I got to learn about this practice. And then I was also invited to be a part of the National Academy of Science and separately the National Institute of Health. They each held these um, conversations with theater artists. And the idea was, can we get theater artists interested in telling stories of science so that science has a way to reach larger communities about their findings? And so I met a lot of really interesting people in that conversation, including Dr. Jim Evans, who's a geneticist here at UNC. And then I was, I'd actually accepted the job at UNC. And so I told him and he said, well, let's meet when you, when you move down here, he's very passionate about theater. And so I knew I wanted a collaboration with him surrounding genetics, which later became a, a play called Among These Well Things. And then I spoke with my chair, Adam Versani, and I let him know that I was interested in ex, you know, exploring collaborations with scientists and medical practitioners. And he introduced me to Bruce Cairns, who's the director of the North Carolina J.C. Byrne Center here at UNC. And we started talking about how can we tell the story of what happens at the Byrne Center? Because burns. So there are diseases that get a lot of attention, get a lot of funding behind them, but burns are not that. Burns are are hard to look at. And so it's difficult to attract people's interest. So I was immediately you know, interested in working with him to tell these stories because as he spoke about burns, you know, they're the great equalizer. It doesn't matter your race, gender, class, doesn't matter what you are, who you are, you can be impacted by a burn. And so I applied for another grant and got some funding so that I could work with Jules and students at UNC School of the Arts were the actors that I worked with. Catherine Hunter-Williams was our director. Dr. Cairns actually had a heart attack in the middle of our project, which stopped our process because he was my partner in this and he needed to heal, you know, his health became the top priority. And so I told him, we're going to stop so that we can figure out what you actually need on the other side of this. Maybe you actually don't need <laughs> to be working with the playwright ready to play. But on the other side of as his healing began, he said more than ever, he wants these stories about the work that they do at the burn center to be told. So we continued the practice. So we actually ended up writing a 20 minute play that was the result of conversations that I had with medical practitioners from doctors, internists, nurses, chaplains that work there at the hospital, and then people who work at the burn centers aftercare program. Because they're when you think about narrative medicine, the story obviously doesn't stop with diagnosis, treatment. There's also recovery and then life beyond. And the Burn Center really has a phenomenal program for their patients and former patients beyond the program. So that project, so 20-minute play that looks at, you know, the history of the Burn Center, how it got started. And you hear different voices from students who are in the medical, who are learning about medicine and deciding, you know, that burns is something they want to actually, burn injuries are something they want to explore. We meet medical doctors, we meet burn survivors, and all in this 20-minute process. And it first started as a play. We had two readings of it, one here at UNC Chapel Hill and then one at UNC School of the Arts. And then uh, it actually went on to become a film. We got it filmed, which is really exciting. And then I was able to share that film with you know students in the medical school, which was also very exciting. 
when you asked the question about what was the response and then also to Jules desire to shift measurements. Um, one of the most exciting things for me was in the post-show discussion that happened at UNC, we had as our panelists, so at UNC School of the Arts, the panelists were uh, myself, Jules, Catherine Hunter-Williams, and the, and the six actors who were a part of the play. At UNC Chapel Hill, I believe I was on the panel, and and then it was also Bruce and his colleagues, and then we actually had some of the people who I interviewed, some of the burn survivors that I interviewed, and one of the men said, and I this this for me is the beyond measurement. He said that, you know, the burn center has a lot of activities, and they invite all of us to everything, and of course we invite our families to be a part of it. My father has never come to any of the events except for today. This was his first time coming to an event to hear the story about people like us, people who had been burned and who are now survivors. And I felt like that's the measurement that we should look at is who shows up, who's interested in stories, what are they learning and how are they moving through their lives differently, having been taught that how they experience what's happening in their bodies should be the first thing that's asked and we should be guided by that experience and that practice. I just wanted to follow up with that is that narrative medicine up to this point in time, there have been lots of plays about illness, but the idea of including plays in the canon of narrative medicine beyond wit, Margaret Edson's, you know, sort of gripping play about a uh, English professor who is experiencing cancer. Plays tend to be left out of it, I think partly because they ask of a, a communal response. Narrative medicine, you know, poems, memoirs, novels uh, have it to be sometimes a very personal process and practice. And so I think it was both important to us to claim Ardeo in the canon of narrative medicine to try and make more space for plays in that space and to also see what the, you know, both the construction and experience and response to plays can offer narrative medicine as, as a discipline. And so, I, again, I just think that what Jacqueline points to in somebody, it, it does draw different people into the room and the experience of those stories shared by actors, right, on stage. They're embodied in different ways. And this was a young, very vibrant cast um, who performed it. And I think that also had a tremendous impact um, for the audience there too. So it's this body speaking in a different kind of way with a different kind of presence that can bring out a different kind of experience. Can we talk a little bit about how this piece is constructed? I'm curious to know if different things had to be in place during the development process when compared to building a, you know, what we think of as a typical classic play, um, what needed to be in place? How was this process? How did it unfold? Oh, I really love this question. So what needed to be in place was knowledge. So, and and by that, I mean, and I, and I love how Jules before when answering about what is narrative medicine spoke about the multiple ways of knowing. So I had to learn multiple things before this play could come into existence. So something that was already in place was the history of the burn center. So that's something that's a narrative, the history they have that it's on their website that exists. 
But that actually did not come until the first draft of the play was actually completed. Um, But then prior to even starting the play, I had to be in conversation with these medical practitioners and also the burn survivors. And so I was actually at UNC Medicine School, you know, School of Medicine sitting in a, you know, they gave me a conference room for four hours over the course of like six days. And um, a student actually was with me, a medical student actually, who had taken a playwriting class with me was there because this was a part of her knowledge building herself. Like she's about to become a medical professional. She'd love to be in conversation with medical professionals. And she specifically wants to be the kind of practitioner who is listening deeply to their patients. So this was something that was really useful for her. So all those interviews had to take place first. And those were hard. Those were really hard interviews to process because, you know, I met a chaplain who his first day of work he witnessed both, you know, he was able to pray over a birth and also help the family who had lost the, the patriarch of their of their family in his first day. And going through that, as people are telling your story, their own story, you're being impacted, of course, by it, which, is, of course, is the beauty of storytelling. So th- those pieces had to be in place first before I could start writing it. And then I did additional research just on literally like what is a burn and what does a burn do to tissue and 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 organs and what is the degree to which, you know, the degree level of heat where the body goes in shock. Like th- so those are things that, like I just had to learn for myself like inside my person in order to figure out how to write about this. Those sorts of things needed to be set. But the structure of the play came in in partnership with Jules as I was figuring out how is this story going to be told and who all do we need to hear from? Like, I know that in my in my research, I heard from a lot of different types of people. Who do we want to make sure we hear from in this process? And so actually the one group of people who I didn't talk to but had working with me was a medical student. And so I was really glad that we and I don't remember how that came. Jules, you might remember. but we. I, oh, I think it was because we need to figure out how to teach about burns so that the right. audience had an understanding of what this what this is. So what better way to teach about burns than to have a medical professor teaching students and students, you know, with their high energy and excitement and competition, and enthusiasm, you know, wanting to show what it is they've learned, but also needing to learn themselves. And then, of course, we needed to learn about like rapid response. So like what happens when a first responder shows up to a burn victim? Like what what do they need to know and do? And so that showed up in the world of play. So we just asked a lot of questions about if we're writing a play about the experience of burn practitioners and burn survivors, what do we need? What do we want the audience to walk through? Like what what is the experience we want the audience to have? And as much as we could we want them to experience multiple voices around what can happen. Well, something beautiful about plays is choral, right? The choral yeah. work that can happen. You can have individual people speak together as one voice, but then representing and break off into different spaces. And so this was one of the things about burn treatment is this interdisciplinary professional, right? So it burns affect every part of the human body, which means there's particular specialties that are had, but the folks who are in cardiology, in pulmonology, in skincare, 
everyone has to be working together. So the idea of kind of a team can be so, I think, powerfully represented by a chorus of people working together. And then you have that the group of people can be both very specific individuals. So we hear detailed voices and points of view, but then they can shift and become, you know, they were the sounds of the, you know, sort of responding to the sounds of the equipment, the group of people who would be first responders, the group of family members, right? So the way that theater can allow a set of people to shift from one person and place to another without confusion if you can give the audience sort of signposts and ways of understanding. And I think that that both seemed, after so many interviews, seemed essential to the dramaturgy of the play. And I think so effective in that dramaturgy because the people in the audience were from all of these different communities remembering times where they all had to kind of come together or at least had to know what was happening in this other group in order for something else, for treatment to move forward or, you know, moving into aftercare when you need to know the history of what a patient has been through. And I think a part of that was also built into the world of play as we went into the rehearsal process, which I think is also really exciting because with Catherine Hunter-Williams, her wanting to bring, you know, we didn't want to just do a stage reading script at, you know, scripts at a music stand these young actors, they're so phenomenal. They were ready to, you know, get off book and just show up in the most exciting way. But what she really wanted to help us do is, so with the sound design that came in, you know, the different beeps that showed up, it's like what we know we hear in a medical, in a hospital, sound of ambulance, of course. And then even things like when a defibrillator is happening and everyone breaks and you back away, like making sure that those actions are shown because this is what we as everyday individuals, whether, you know, we, we've experienced that ourselves or we've seen it on, you know, any medical television show. So we, we understand this world. Uh, oh, and the other thing that was really great is that when the medical professionals spoke with me, it was, I mean, they're so generous with their time. I mean, they came on their break to talk to me. And for those interviews, we were in their break room, you know, so we got to experience the kinds of conversations that take place in a, in a break room with medical professionals, which unless you are that, you don't get to have that experience. So that became a part of the world of the play too. First of all, I want to say that I feel like the fluidity of the structure of this piece was really useful in, in the ways that you mentioned, that you both mentioned, in giving us a, a kind of a broad sense of the experience. And I felt like it opened up possibility for more people to see themselves represented and their experiences represented. I imagine as audience members, that sort of breadth helped everybody to feel more included in what you are putting out there for people. I guess I also want to say that through this podcast, it's really even more so become apparent to me how important it is for people to tell their own stories in their own words as a living people, as a way of being seen and valued and heard. And I think that's one of the great gifts that these types of narrative medicine theater pieces can offer to people. It affirms the value of their lived experience of what they've overcome individually and in community. 
I guess I just want to lift that up as is something that I see as a, a gift that you are giving to people. Can you talk a little bit more about what you see as the value that this type of piece affords? And it can be the value of the process or the value of the product. So as I was talking with the with the burn survivors, the thing that I was taught is that not everyone, and there comes a point when this becomes true, is that they call themselves burn overcomers because there's there's a way in which the healing process it's not that it it it's complete but that it's that you you're no longer defined by this event that happened to you this great altering event and you've you've overcome this thing that's happened and i was so happy to to have been given that given that inside information because i was able to put it in the play which audience members then really greatly appreciated this space of injury, treatment, healing, recovery, overcoming. So that traumatic events which alter your life and define a particular moment in time, absolutely, there is a world where you can overcome it. And where there'll be, you know, physical markings may always remind you, but you're no longer stuck in that. And and stuck isn't quite the right word, but that trauma is no longer what is driving each moment of each day and each thought. And I just, that was such a beautiful space to, it's a beautiful gift to be given and a beautiful space to realize. And I was really, really happy to put it in the play because that's been something that people have really, truly appreciated, including the medical students who, after watching the 20-minute film and then, you know, listening to the post-show discussion, said to me that that space of overcoming is what we should all strive for. And obviously, it's on, it's not on the doctor's clock, it's on the individual's clock. But what that means is that the doctor, the nurse, the internist, the, you know, phlebotomist, whoever, is always listening to the patient. And I thought, yes, that's it, that right there. It's the listening to the patient is what we're getting to. So my hope and what I have seen is that this play, because we do have the patients speaking and we do have the doctors telling, or you know, medical professionals telling us why they decided to go into medicine in the first place. I, I hope people can see it but so that they can start to realize that that their point of view, their perspective, their individual story is what's needed in that healing and healthcare process. Another aspect of this was that while there are elements of this piece that are rooted in documentary theater, in that sort of deep listening interviews and spending time and spaces and really trying to absorb the kind of material lived conditions of the people who you're trying to learn about, whose stories you're listening to, it isn't a documentary play. It isn't meant to be a precise representation. It is theatrical. It is trying to use the dimensions of theater, of multivocality, of multiple place and time, and that characters are distillations of many stories. They're not universalized, they're very specific, but they're not necessarily trying to be 
you know, the J it's the burn center. It is, we're being honest and responsible to a history, but that history is poetic as much as it is real. And I don't mean to put poetry and realism in a, in a, in a binary against one another, but I think that it has the expressive qualities of it are the places in which then lots of different people can find themselves represented or push against representation without necessarily feeling like there's a right or a wrong, that this is a capturing of a moment in time, of a cycle of treatment. And within that, it is one of many. And it, it kind of acknowledges that by its multivocality, right? It's it's not trying to be the mm-hmm. end all and be all, but it is as welcoming as it can be and as a jumping off point for other other ways, other stories, other, you know, sort of in conversation with other pieces. I think that that is both it's it can move from burn it doesn't always have to be about burns right it can be to any profession but mm-hmm. it also is um it really embraces the form of theater what theater can do specifically in telling these stories which is unique in its art form I think if if we let it be and so the things that theater can teach narrative or that narrative and theater together can start to um, make visible or um, make resonant for people is, I think there's a lot of ways that this piece becomes a kind of uh, example. It's not meant to be a model, but just an example. Jules, can we talk a little bit more about opportunities for theater makers within medical humanities, across interdisciplinary opportunities for them within this narrative medicine. Like, say I'm a theater maker and I want to do something <laughs> like this. How do I? <laughs> well, you heard, ja- What's out there? you heard Jacqueline saying the first thing is that you get a grant. I mean, I think the, the yeah. kind of <laughs> key element is is both finding your collaborators. I yeah. I actually, I think we knew each other before you were on that panel at NIH, Jacqueline, but I'm not sure whether we actually kind of came to know each other in this circle of theater makers being, you know, in conversation with scientists, um, which is a, a big interest of mine. And both seeing Jacqueline produce or her own play writing in response to that, but also where, how do you get at seat at that table? I mean, scientists are very interested in people communicating their reality, right? So here's the science, you theater maker are the storyteller, and you go and do that. And I think those collaborations, they're not, not like falling off the trees, but they are common because the skills that we are given, the skills that you're given to work in a science lab are not necessarily thinking about how will I explain this to anybody or how will I make people care about what I'm doing? I'm just doing what I'm doing. And the spaces and training that we're given as story makers is about communication always, always thinking about our audience and sometimes to our detriment, right? That we sort of think about, oh, wait a minute, who am I talking to as opposed to what do I want to unearth? So there is a positive set of collaborations that are available. It's not frequent, partly because we go back to that measurement aspect Mm -hmm. and science medicine being a branch of science, right, is very interested in quantifiable impacts and story making. And you can get an an NSF grant 
that is focused on education and communication. And that sometimes is a space where you can collaborate. But the parameters for even the impact of that story, you know, like what you have to prove and what you have to show are immense. You know, the Sloan Foundation, which is a national science foundation that's interested in funding communication about science, has a playwriting competition every year. And some of the plays that come out of there are incredible. And some of them feel like a PR letter for science, right? They don't necessarily feel like art. But, you know, so artists have to strike this tentative balance between, am I serving the story, which means it might go in lots of different places, or am I serving the kind of expected outcome, which is, does that person now know something about X, Y, and Z phenomenon or science? Right. And I think that tension, you have to find good collaborators. I think Jacqueline found one in Dr. Cairns. I forget the person that you met at the NIH, who's a uh, geneticist. Dr. Evans. Yeah, Dr. Evans. Right. If you can find those collaborators on the scientific or medical field who are are willing to use their influence and have an expansive view on storytelling in their own projects. I'm collaborating with a scientist, a climate geologist at UNC. I've been working with her for two and a half years on a play that she wanted to write out of her research. She's someone who's well-respected in her scientific field, but her field is also dealing with the kind of difficult narrative around climate change and beach restorations and housing and all of these kind of larger social issues. And she wanted to engage a different way of telling the story of her research. And that became a play. So finding someone who is an expert in a field who is willing to put their expertise in a different context or collaborate with your expertise to find out what can you tell together i think is the it's it's the greatest uh, gift when you can find it it's also the thing that a lot of times you kind of have to work carefully to find out how do we make work together because the demands for the outcome of that work are so different. How do we understand what are the values that we're working together in order to achieve? If it's education, then it's that. Is it changing, you know, sort of changing the public narrative? Okay, then it's that. Is it not deeper knowledge about the science? Each one of those might require a slightly different collaboration and certainly a different outcome. Plays are great because they can hold lots of different realities, right? There's lots of different forms that that can take, but you also have to be on the same page if you're making new work around that on how are we going to get there? What are we going to let drive the collaboration? Being attached to university is really great for a theater artist because you've got creative research is something we do all the time and you've got access um, to these folks. But the other thing I would say is start with yourself. Start with literally your health stories, the health stories of your family. Like I think about like when you go to the doctor, you have to fill out like what is your medical history? And you have to figure out what is your family's medical history and their medical history. And that's where the stories begin. Obviously, accuracy down the line is very important. You know, if you're actually trying to share out information, you, you want that to be accurate. That's one of the things when working with the NAS and NIH is um, we 
love drama. We love narrative because the storytelling nature is what captures the audience. We also want to make sure without weighing it down too heavily that it's accurate. But I think for those who may not be able to write a grant or who might not have access like I do to people at a university, I think if you can start telling your particular story and the story of your what's going on with your family, I think that's that's the beginning of a process. Right. Oh, there's so many things that we can talk about. It's very hard to wrap this up. Um, <laughs> okay. We do need to come to a close. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like to mention before we wrap up? I would just say we haven't touched on it. The implication is there that Jacqueline and I are both dramaturgs, you know, work with other people. When we work together, I tend to be her dramaturg and I'm also a director, right? We we have these different facets and hats, but I think one of the things that is beneficial about if you can, if you're someone who writes and it doesn't, you don't, they don't have to call themselves a dramaturg if that title is intimidating because I can understand how it is. It seems very academic and more like sort of something being attached to your work. But I think if you can find a collaborator who can bring a broader sense or add to what already are your strengths, other strengths and perspectives, someone that you trust, someone who can, uh, if you can work with them over a period of time, I think that's great because you can evolve, you can share with them the different aspects of your work and they can both get to be your audience, your embedded audience, as well as then your sort of embedded critic or your embedded person who's going, wait a minute, or asking a question that, you know, you trust is as genuine and yet complicated that you're willing to answer, right? Or you're willing to say, that's not that I don't need to answer that question right now. And trust me, I know why. Right. So I think just the deepness of collaboration, particularly around theater, partly because what we're doing is already trying to carry so many voices and anticipating so many different listeners and experiencers that the benefit of having somebody that you you trust to work with is already anticipating that moment. And sometimes working with one person, I think it's great, but you can also get that if you work with multiple people, because again, it's an opportunity, but developing habits of work that feel good to you so that if you have a, a different collaborator each time, you know what you need from that person and you can articulate it. And if you find, you know, and that person says, oh, if they do their job well, typically they can say, I hear you. And that is what I will give you. I just would say it, I'm I'm biased because I've had a fairly, I feel like, both personally productive and professionally exciting collaboration with Jacqueline, but it's been over a number of years and I haven't necessarily had that before with anybody except my spouse. <laughs> and what it has shown, what it has helped me grow as a person and even outside of the work that we do together, I'm kind of carrying that experience with me. And I think that makes me a better theater maker overall. That's beautifully said. Yeah, that's so beautifully said. And I would say I would agree because I feel like with collaborating with Jules as a dramaturg, you know, I always I come to her with these just big questions. Like, this is what I want to do. Like, I'm thinking about among these wild things, which is like, I want to explore a play that addresses human rights, American imperialism in Nigeria, and genetics. <laughs> and I want to put it in a play <laughs> with like five people. 
help, right? So I can go to her and I can say this, um, or the, the recent immigration play that I, um, oh, that went through so many iterations and, and I'm like, oh, maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's this post-apocalyptic thing. And Jules can say to me, just write, just sit down, stop trying to figure it all out before in the play and just write. And I know I can trust, I, I trust her to tell me what it is I need to do in the moment. And again, we've been working together. It's only been five years. I've only been here five years, but it feels like at least 30 because <laughs> we packed in so many projects in that five-year time frame. by which I mean I come to her every day with a new idea and say, hey, is this of interest? Can we play on this together? And I literally just gave Jules three more plays for the summer. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, it's just really delicious because the the brilliant thing that a dramaturg is able to do, particularly one as smart as Jules is, she can see what is unique and distinct about each particular story. And that the thing that I was doing in one play is not going to work for this other play. She can identify lazy writing. She knows when my writing is very lazy because I've hit a point of like exhaustion or I haven't done the interrogation into a character that I should or I'm just lost in the world of play at the moment. So having that kind of collaboration, I can send the play to her in word and know that all the markings and, and that are going to show up are going to be what strengthens the play because she's so inside of my writing and so inside of the intention of the piece, even when I'm in the mud of it, she can see so clearly where it is I'm trying to go and then help to get me help help to get me there, really. And then the other thing that working with the dramaturg is so just life saving grace is that all those audience questions and all those audience opinions, the dramaturg can help decipher what is good to think about and enjoy, what is useful to move the play forward, what is let's hold this thought over here because it's not for this play at this moment, maybe a year from now, this note is going to be valuable, but not right now. So that, that's been that's been my greatest joy in working with Jules specifically. And, and when you can find a good dramaturg that's able to do all those things, hold on to them as long as you can. Because it's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful, beautiful connection to have. Thank you both so much. I love this as a way to end our conversation. I'm totally here for our theater pods. There's just so much to be said for working in collaboration with people who care for us and care for the work we do, especially as that relationship develops over time. So thank you so much for speaking to that. Thank you for the work that you do, which I am so inspired by, and for just being wonderful individuals um, and a wonderful team. So thank you. I will put links in the show notes so that people can watch the film and read about it. I'm sure they will be as inspired as I am. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. For more information, please see the show notes and artistsoapbox.org. You can also listen to the six episodes of our new scripted audio fiction piece, The New Colossus, at thenewcolossuspodcast.com. Thanks so much.
Hey friends, this introduction was recorded on June 6th, 2020. The interview was recorded on May 18th, 2020. I'm pleased to bring the second of two episodes featuring the work of Jacqueline E. Lawton, playwright, dramaturg, producer, and advocate for access, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the American theater. In this episode, along with dramaturg Jules Odendahl-James, you'll hear Jacqueline discuss her play, Ardeo. Ardeo is a one-act play inspired by research and personal narratives of health practitioners and patients at UNC Chapel Hill's North Carolina's J.C. Byrne Center. This play explores how patients and doctors communicate with each other, how health practitioners communicate with the public, and how theater artists can be of service to patients, doctors, and the larger public. Please see the link in the show notes to learn and read more about Ardeo, to see photos and watch the short film of the piece performed. You may have noticed that many of the 2020 Artist Soapbox episodes have focused on playwrights, playwriting, and new play development, and that is certainly the case again for this episode. In this conversation, Jacqueline and Jules touch on the field of narrative medicine, the particular development process for Ardeo, the value of partnering the dramatic arts and science, and opportunities to create those collaborations. Speaking of collaborations, Jules and Jacqueline talk about their work together as theater makers and the awesomeness of dramaturgs and dramaturgy, especially for new plays in development. Narrative medicine is not my specialty, but it does seem to me that this is an important moment for personal narratives of COVID-19, both for patients and health practitioners. Sharing individual experiences and stories can be a way to share information about symptoms and best practices, can be a tool for healing and recovery even during isolation, can be a way to feel seen, to be seen.